Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Linda Chavez of the Nishkanid Center and Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter, Eyes on the Right. Another of our regulars, Bill Galston, is having some technical issues because he's in a remote location and hopefully will be able to join us. But we are also very happy to welcome back A.B. Stoddard as our guest this week. She's associate editor and columnist at Real Clear Politics. So welcome one and all. Um, In the wake of the really devastating, damaging revelations in the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News for defamation, where all kinds of details of Fox News's um, mendacity were revealed for the world to see. What happens? But Tucker Carlson chooses this moment to begin the revisionist history about what happened on January 6th. He was given more than 40,000 hours of security tapes by none other than the Speaker of the House. So I'm going to start with you, A.B., because you had a piece this week talking about a related issue, which is how leading Republicans, especially those who are planning to or have already announced that they are running for president, how they are handling the question of where the party stands on January 6th. Right. Well, it's clear from looking at the field of contenders, Nikki Haley is the only person who's officially announced as a Republican running against Trump in the nominating contest. But there are others that we're watching, like Tim Scott and Chris Sununu and Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo, who are likely to enter and are doing all the things that you do before you do. And of course, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. So Looking at them, it's clear that January 6th is a forbidden topic. They are not allowed to discuss it. This is universal across the field. And if it was enough of an issue with swing voters, you would think that they would at least mention it here and there. But this is uh, prohibited. So it is going to be an alternate reality over there on the Republican side. I don't know what that nominee, whoever it is, eventually will do when they make it to a general election, and God forbid it's Donald Trump. But it is official now that all these years later, January 6th is off the table for Republicans. What's interesting about Fox and the timing of, of this, to me, is I don't think Fox cares about um, these embarrassing revelations happening at the same time that Tucker is releasing his revisionist um, history about it. I don't think they care about Brett Baer trying to push back in this six o'clock hour. I think they're hoping that people who watch Tucker don't know much about the Dominion deposition and all the revelations and all the embarrassing texts and emails. And I think that for Tucker, he is going to insist on giving the people what they want, no matter what comes out of this lawsuit and this whole exchange has cemented his position as, you know, sort of the ultimate power player in the media 
for the nihilists in the House Republican caucus. And, and we have to remember that when we look at the speaker, Kevin McCarthy, he is a hostage. And, and this was part of his ability to retain his job, which is probably only temporary. This idea that he would come up with the tapes. He had no choice but to give them to Tucker. There was no way he could ever give them to anyone else at Fox, like Shannon Bream or Brett Baer. And the fact that it's boomerang, the fact that Republicans in the Senate side and even some on the House have become so jittery and anxious about this and pushing back, saying things like, you know, this is BS and I was there, it was an insurrection, makes it clear that this will be problematic for the Republican nominee once they approach the general election. But for now, most people are living in the House Republican conference, people who are running for president, and of course the House Republicans, hoping that their viewers just have no idea about this tension in the party, about this division, about the revelations in the Dominion lawsuit. And so we're going to live in this fiction because the House Republicans and Kevin McCarthy, you know, they require it to stay popular with the base. Linda, I watched some of the Tucker show. So, of course, he cherry-picked a couple of images of people not rioting and said, see, these were sightseers. These weren't insurrectionists. They were orderly. They were meek. He used the word meek. It reminded me of nothing so much as that often mocked clip from CNN during the summer of 2020 when a reporter was standing in front of a burning building and saying (laughs) these are mostly peaceful protests. I mean, this is the exact equivalent. You know, Tucker saying, well, these people weren't rioting, but it's much worse than that. It's much more sinister. I mean, he's saying you've been lied to. They are misleading you. It's all a huge scam by the powers that be. And uh, it was outrageous enough. It was sort of 1984-ish enough that some Republicans, including you know the usual suspects like Mitt Romney, who can be relied upon to say the right thing, but also Tom Tillis of North Carolina called it bullshit. Uh, Senator John Thune of South Dakota said that this was an attack on the Capitol, and there were a lot of people, he said, who I think were scared for their lives and so on. And Mitch McConnell said, that what Fox did was a mistake, but he said, I want to associate myself entirely with the opinion of the chief of the Capitol Police about what happened. And the chief of the Capitol Police was extremely angry. So a little bit of Republican pushback. Not much. Not much. (laughs) And by the way, Tucker Carlson had 40,000 hours of video What was he able to come up with to be able to show his viewers? About four minutes. Uh I haven't done the math on that. I think this is sort of beyond my math calculations. I don't know how many zeros I'd have to put in to come up with the portion of a percent that that would equal. I mean, it is just quite shocking. And, you know, it's fine to say this is all aimed at the base, et cetera, but this is the kind of propaganda that we used to see during the Stalin era. This is erasing people and events from history. This is not just merely ignoring a blatant fact. This is rewriting on an epic scale that is really quite shocking. And by the way, it's not going to end with Tucker Carlson and his little review of the tapes. Apparently, the new oversight committee 
is uh, the one that is headed by James Comer and has Marjorie Taylor Greene in it. They're going to head on out to visit those who are in jail, the January 6th prisoners who have admitted their guilt in many instances or been found guilty by their peers in a jury trial. And one of the things that Tucker is trying to push is that this footage was not provided to the defense counsels in these cases, and therefore the people who are in jail ought to be freed. And I think he points to the so-called shaman as one of the people because he was uh, featured very prominently on Tucker's uh, show, walking the halls of Congress with his horns on and looking like a rather bizarre visitor from, if not another planet, maybe from another century. Um, oh, and- that's the new Republican base. <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> I mean, you know, we can laugh at it. We can say that, you know, surely nobody really believes this stuff. But there is a core uh, within the Republican Party that does. And they are dangerous. And they are anti-democratic. And they continue to have a stranglehold on the party and the party leadership, or we would not see Kevin McCarthy giving over this footage or James Comer leading a delegation to visit the prisoners who might think, well, now they'll try to portray them as political prisoners rather than the thugs that they were. Oh, yes, they are political prisoners now, according to the former president. He put out a truth on his social network platform, Truth Social, uh, in all capital letters. Let the January 6th prisoners go. They were convicted or are awaiting trial based on a giant lie, a radical left con job. Thank you to Tucker Carlson and Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy for what you both have done. New video footage is irrefutable. So, Damon Linker, I'm going to quote my Bulwark colleague, Sonny Bunch, who has guest hosted this podcast and I'm sure will again. He said, uh, Quote, going to be kind of funny to watch GOP candidates dance around acknowledging that the presidential frontrunner and the party's semi-official media organ are more or less pro-storming the Capitol at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and the, the, the whole story is, you wouldn't believe it if you didn't live through it. I no. mean, you have a channel that has news in the name. That is really, it is a kind of, I was going to say Stalinist. I don't want to say that because it's not kind of in the name of sending people to the gulag necessarily yet. (laughs) It's not, you know, backing up totalitarianism, but. It it is it has truly the same a, fealty to the truth. Yeah, as it kind Prop of epistemologically, yes. it is set up in exactly the same way, where yeah. you have a machine that exists at every level in order to launder criminality and malfeasance of all kinds, and not only launder that, but also to kind of spew out a constant stream of gaslighting. BS. And it is so thorough that 
on most days, most months, most years, it sort of just kind of pollutes the ecosystem and you don't actually see it because it's so pervasive. But the Dominion lawsuit revelations have given us a glimpse behind that proverbial curtain. And you have quotes of Tucker Carlson admitting he hates Trump passionately. We're pretending that we got a lot to show for Trump being president. But come on, there really isn't an upside to Trump. None, right. he says. No upside. Except for his career. It, well, yes, of course, except for his own career acting as a kind of populist facilitator for Trump, yeah. including to this very day with the laundering of what took place on January 6th. And I remember back in the Bush administration era, it was very clear to me as a critic of Bush on a lot of things that Fox News was acting as a kind of propaganda arm of the Bush administration. And I don't mean that in an insidious sounding way. I mean that it was very much wedded to what the Bush administration was trying to do. And it would give news reports from Iraq that would make the battle there look like it was going a little better than it really was. And they wouldn't report other things that would raise questions about whether it was going that well. And that's what information ministries do. And there's always been some of that kind of spin going on in politics. It's the way politics is. But now Fox News doesn't really exist to just do that kind of spin. It exists to amplify and intensify the most rabid, prejudiced, bigoted, conspiratorial id eruptions from the Republican base and to uh, empower them. We all know the party's trying to ride this tiger of the base, but this stuff isn't just tying it firmly to the base. It's also constantly making that tiger more rabid, hungrier, more vicious, and more pushed to the extremes of the right. And so it's actually an amplification mechanism now that is driving the party further and further away from liberal democracy in a way that is, I find, truly alarming. And the fact that this news of Tucker Carlson's statements, which he hasn't denied, they're his statements in contextual transcripts of him speaking to other people who are also not denying their veracity. They come out the same week and no one anywhere has even the slightest thought that, ooh, this is going to hurt him somehow. Oh, these videos he's showing of January 6th, no one will take them seriously because they know that he just lies. No, no one thinks that that's going to be the problem because the people who listen to him don't care. They reflexively will not believe if someone says he's a liar. They will just believe what he says instead. And that's a kind of closed loop of pure nonsense. And it's hard to know how to break out of it. I have no ideas about how one might break out of it, but it is not good. I mean, the last little point I'll make is just to say that, you know, how this is going to play out on debate stages in the coming months when they start to hold Republican debates is really going to be amazing to see because of the division that you noted in the party over what happened on January 6th, but also because of the fact that Trump is portraying himself so far out on the edge of treating these insurrectionists like national heroes. And you're going to have all these other candidates like Haley and presumably DeSantis and maybe others on the debate stage with them. And 
even if they don't want to respond, any journalist worth his salt is going to say, uh, yes, Nikki Haley, what do you think about what the former president just said about what happened on January 6th, which is going to force her either to embrace it too or reject it and get into a fist fight with the guy on national television or obfuscate like we've never seen anyone obfuscate in our lives. And it's going to be something. A.B., let's dwell for a little longer on the role of Kevin McCarthy here. People have said several times that the whole reason that Tucker was given these security tapes is because of a deal that McCarthy made to become speaker. But with whom did he make the deal? Was it Marjorie Taylor Greene? Did she demand this in exchange for her support? Who was it who um, he was dealing with, if you know? First of all, it's not been made clear and, and not been made official. But between Tucker talking about this during the time that McCarthy had not yet secured the speakership, that he should be forced to hand over the tapes. And then Marjorie Taylor Greene, sort of before we found out that the 41,000 hours had been given to Tucker, she was tweeting about it. Just wait just a couple days. And so because she is an ambassador to the rest of the freaks, right, who held up the speaker vote. So she was always at McCarthy's side. She's now his ally. She's now a lieutenant of Kevin McCarthy's. But she was dealing with Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates and people who were opposing him. And so I feel like that was a part of the hostage situation and the ransom the entire time was these tapes. Got it. Okay. Uh, Linda, one last thing as we contemplate these very important institutions in American society that seem to be teetering and to have lost a lot of integrity. It is worth noting that this week, one of the Trump lawyers, Jenna Ellis, pled guilty in a administrative proceeding in Colorado to misrepresenting the outcome of the election, and she has been censured. So she admitted that when she said on November 20th, 2020, that Trump's team had evidence of a, quote, coordinated effort in all of these states to transfer votes, either from Trump to Biden, to manipulate the ballots, to count them in secret, unquote, that was false. She admitted that it was false to say that Trump won in a landslide, and she admitted it was wrong to say that the Trump team had found 500,000 illegal votes had been cast in Arizona. So your comments. Well, first of all, that's all true, and I'm glad she's been censured, but she should never be allowed to practice law again, nor should any of the people that were involved in this charade, in my view. Mm -hmm. I mean, they Mm -hmm. should lose their law licenses. People have lost their licenses to practice law for less than this. I mean, this is an attack on the whole concept of the rule of law. So that is the first point. The second point is, yes, she did admit it in order, I guess, to, you know, to try to mitigate whatever punishment they were going to hand down. But she's been all over, I don't know if it's Twitter or Truth, but she's been all over social media saying, well, it wasn't really intentional and this is being misrepresented. So she's Mm. essentially backtracking. And it's not surprising. These are people who say one thing when they're forced to admit the truth, and then they go right out and tell their followers exactly the opposite. I mean, it's the same phenomena as Tucker Carlson. It just 
boggles the mind to see Tucker Carlson's tweets and then to see him in pictures with Lone Bobart on one side and Donald Trump on the other, you know, yucking it up down in Florida at some event. All of these people, I mean, hypocrites, that we got to come up with a different word because it just isn't strong enough to describe who these people are. You may have seen on social media, I'm sure you've all seen it, that it's got a lot of coverage that uh, somebody pulled up footage of Tucker from like the 2000s mm-hmm. where um, he was a journalist in good standing at the time. He had mm-hmm. a good reputation. And um, he had written something about Bill O'Reilly, who was the star of Fox News at the time, and about what a phony he was. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Did you ever think we would think, you know, where is Bill O'Reilly when we need him? He was the sanest <laughs> voice on that network in comparison to all of the cuckoo birds who are there now. Well, maybe he's slightly less dangerous phony than the ones we have now. I don't know. I mean, but, a sexual uh, predator, maybe. But oh, yes, yes. There yes, was yes. that. But, you know, in, uh, in, in terms of the politics, it's just really quite astonishing, the transformation of Fox News Channel. Because when it started, I'm sorry, it did provide a kind of antidote to the liberal bias in the media. And it did have uh, the voices of reason. You know, I was not ashamed to be associated with them in their early years. And, you know, they fired me. But if they hadn't fired me, I would have quit. A.B. was on for years on the Brett Baer show. Correct. Right. A.B., do you still do that show? I didn't even think to ask. I was on Fox two to four times a week for 15 years. And after January 6th, we parted ways. Got it. Well, uh, it's pretty depressing. There's no doubt about it. And some people are saying, well, this is going to hurt Fox News because they're either going to have to trim their sales in order not to get sued, or they're going to lose their viewers to competitors who are willing to dish out the falsehood and the red meat without fear of lawsuits. I don't know. I think I'm in the um, Jonathan V. Last camp. He he wrote a piece this week saying, no, there will be no consequences. Fox will sail on. You know, they may have to pay a fine. He didn't go into that if they lose the lawsuit. But just in terms of their audience, their stature, he said politicians will still go on their air. Journalists will still treat them as colleagues, etc. Does everyone agree with that? Could I just say a word about that? Because I think a lot of people are ignoring the fact that this is a public corporation. It has certain fiduciary responsibilities to its shareholders. And, you know, it isn't just Paul Ryan. There were others on the board who were saying at the time, you know, we shouldn't be airing this stuff. And in fact, I think there's a dereliction of duty. And I am surprised that there are not stockholder suits against the corporation because what they were doing was malpractice and they were hurting shareholders by their activity. Of course, if the shares go up, then it's harder to make that case. But Right. I mean, yeah. Linda, you know a lot about these corporate governance issues. I mean, you're not allowed to lie to your board, but are you allowed to lie to your customers? (laughs) Well, you're not allowed to lie to your shareholders. And if you have behavior that is going on that threatens the brand, I mean, there's a whole section when you do your reports every year to the SEC, you have to discuss risks. And what they were doing were risky to the company. But maybe not. Maybe not. 
right? I mean, they may not pay any price in terms of their audience. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just, as Linda was speaking, I was like, all right, share price. Let's check out Fox Corp. How are they doing? Well, they're doing okay. I mean, they're down. Everything's been down lately. And they've tanked a bit over the last few days because of these revelations. But they're at about where they were, like, in January. And then if you go back to, like, January a year ago, you know, they were actually lower than they are now. So they're doing all right. I mean, obviously, if the lawsuit gets decided, they get hit with $100 million that they have to pay, that could change things. I mean, I've long said I totally agree with Jonathan Last almost all the time, remarkably. But on that (laughs) particular piece that you mentioned, Mona, I agree with him on that, too, except for this consideration about money loss. If they do have to face a, a genuinely painful financial penalty for having done that, I think that at least we will see that they will not repeat what they did the what the next time there's another January 6th. So I guess like if those exact events are repeated and there's a question about whether the voting machines were rigged, they they won't quite go down that path quite so far. But, but you know they're they're, going they can down do other it. Paths, I know, know? exactly. Because yeah, yeah, there yeah. isn't always going to be someone withstanding to sue for damages. Yeah. You know, the sad fact is, I think what this whole episode underlines is the wisdom of Learned Hand, that great jurist who said, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it dies there, no constitution, no law, no court can save it. And, you know, that's kind of where we are. All right, let's move on to a quick around the horn on Biden's imminent announcement. Seems like, based on what First Lady Jill Biden said when she was in Africa, and on the structure of the State of the Union address where Biden kept saying, let's finish the job, and all of the scuttlebutt that we're hearing, it looks like he's running, despite his advanced age. So, A.B., you've been an outlier. Do you still think he won't, or have you come around? I am still that crazy person. Okay. I'm looking for tea leaves. And I noticed in his David Muir interview, just before Jill Biden did her rounds of interviews on her trip, he said, I still have a lot to do before a campaign. I've said I intend to run, but there's still a lot to be done. And then Jill Biden said, look, it's his decision if he wants to do it. Of course, you know, we're all in. And she used the word if. And I read into that, that they're trying to buy time. And I just think it's absolute madness, as I always have, that he could run again. And it's an untenable situation for his party and potentially, unfortunately, for the country. And I don't know how they're going to handle it, but I still am that weird person who is going to keel over if there's an announcement on the wire or on TV that he has announced he's running again. I, I I cannot believe it. Wow. Okay. Could I actually, though, I, I, I maybe I've missed something, A.B., if I uh, haven't read something of yours, I apologize. But, like, what's the other shoe? Why? I mean, I'm just because of his age? Is that it? Yeah. I mean, okay. I just think it is impossible for him to say that he can run this country until January of 2029. He knew when he got into this that he was going to be too old for a second term. I understand the jam that he's in politically with his vice president. 
she was supposed to be the do no harm candidate. There are people who are Democrats who can pick up the mantle and run against old crazy man Trump. Joe Biden's not the only one who can beat him. To say that Joe Biden can run again when he's visibly aged, he has just passed the two-year mark on his first term. He's not announcing at Easter and running in August. This is way far off. He could go hang out with Chuck Grassley at age 89 and do the job of senator, but saying that you can be president from 82 to 86, I just think it's ludicrous. Okay, thanks. Linda, in 2019, Politico asked a uh, Biden aide about this question, and this person, Anonymous, said, if Biden is elected, he's going to be 82 years old in four years, and he won't be running for re-election. And there were similar quotes. And Biden himself used the term transitional president, but not lately. So what do you think of the Kamala issue? I mean, I know you're not a fan, but I mean, any possible way around this or does Biden just have to run? (laughs) Well, I, you know, totally agree with AB. I've said this for a very long time, and I think I can say it with a little authority as somebody who'll turn 76 in a couple of months. I just think he is too old. Obviously, Donald Trump is too old as well. I mean, if I were writing the Constitution today, I'd put not only a a floor in how old you have to be in order to run, but a ceiling. Yeah. Yeah, there are the exceptional people. You know, Milton Friedman still had a very active mind in his 90s, but most people don't. And so I don't think he should run. But the problem is Kamala Harris. If she were a true patriot and was willing to sacrifice herself for the good of the country, she would, as soon as Joe Biden announced that he wasn't running, decide that she wasn't running either. But I think we all know that that's not going to happen. She's very ambitious. That is the one thing that you know strikes one about her and has been for a very long time. And she has a very expansive view of her own capacity. So I think it's going to be a problem. Now, The biggest problem is going to be that on the other side of the aisle, at least right now, you know, it looks like Donald Trump may again get the nomination. Maybe he won't. One can hope that he doesn't. But if it's going to be, you know, a Kamala Harris versus Donald Trump, I don't know. I think Trump might win, you know, and, and that is a really horrifying terrifying yeah horrifying kind of you know prediction so what do you think damon well uh, lots of little things first of all i think the scenario that trump could win against harris is certainly true i think it's entirely possible he could win against anybody i definitely don't agree with pundits who are kind of cavalierly many of them democrats or democratic aligned who like very cavalierly are like oh trump can't win he's shown he can't win like no 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 even in why do 20- i have the sense of deja vu it's ridiculous <sighs> i mean in 2020 he lost by 7 million votes. So everyone thinks, oh, you know, he has got his clock cleaned by Biden. But it was down to five digits in three to four states that he lost by. In the Electoral College, you switch about 80,000 votes in three to four states, and Trump wins while losing the popular vote by 7 million. So, you know, the idea that it was some landslide and he totally he lost in this huge way is just simply not true. So... I think it's extremely dangerous if he is the nominee, no matter who he's running against, whether even if it's 
you know, the great Biden who slayed him the last time. Then when it comes to the Paul Biden thing and whether he's going to run, I don't know. All I know is that it is in his interest as the current president, if he's not going to run, to wait as long as possible to announce, because the second he announces he's not running, he becomes a lame duck and has no power. And so things like the budget that we'll be talking about in a little while, you know, the whole dynamic over that and the game of chicken he's playing with Republicans over the debt ceiling, his hand becomes exponentially weaker if he's a lame duck. So that's playing into his thinking, I think. But then, of course, the good of the country and the Democratic Party is that if he's not going to run, he should tell us as soon as possible (laughs) because you want to have an open primary where the party can decide, do you really want Kamala Harris to be the nominee? My instinct tells me that she is by no means a shoe-in if there is a true open primary where they all come out and they go on the debate stage and they run and then you go through all the states with all the voting. I don't see a scenario where Harris comes out of that on top uh, because she's shown repeatedly how politically weak she is. She's just not that good at it. She can win a statewide race in true blue California but the country is not California. So that's, for me, the kind of the big question mark right now is this kind of the contrary interests right now are that, again, if Biden's not going to run, he wants to wait as long as possible. But the party and the country, if he's not going to run, need him to tell us as soon as possible to set up a real decision tree for Democratic voters in the primaries coming up. Well, that's a perfect segue into our next topic about these budget battles that are coming up. But by way of introducing this subject, I would say, Damon, I beg to differ with you in one aspect of what you said, which is that the minute Biden says this, he's going to be a lame duck, and therefore it's not in his interest to say it. You know, I think in light of the way the election in 2022 went, he's already a lame duck in the sense of legislation. Nothing is going to pass Congress with his leadership. This is all going to be about demonstration votes and posturing for the next election on the part of both parties. Now, eventually, they will have to come to some sort of agreement on, on, uh, you know, on spending and on and the debt ceiling. I mean, there are things like that. But whether he runs or doesn't run is immaterial to how those things come out. I think. It could be. You you could be right. I mean, all I'm thinking of is, you know, every two-term president I've ever seen in the last, you know, 18 to 24 months, basically after the midterms, it's sort of like coast to the end. And if we assume Biden is now in that kind of a chapter of his presidency, like now we imagine we're in the seventh year of the Biden presidency rather than the beginning of the third year of it. I view him as uh, in a pretty weak negotiating posture on pretty much everything. Yeah. And those others were in weak negotiating positions because I'm trying to think back, but I I can't recall a time uh, in recent history when a president in the second half of his second term didn't have a Congress controlled by the other party or at least one house. So anyway, that's where Biden is right now. And, uh, you know, he'll still have regulatory authority. He'll still have, you know, whatever influence, you know, he has as an executive and as commander in chief. But in terms of legislation, all right, so he is proposing 
AB, I'm going to come to you first. He's proposing things that he could not pass when his party controlled both houses, <laughs> right? I mean, he's, you know, the, the, um, the big increases in taxes on the rich and so forth. That didn't pass muster when he had full control. So certainly not going to pass muster today. But let me pose this to you, AB. We are facing horrific deficits as a country for some bad reasons. Namely, we have a bunch of children who cannot make trade-offs and cannot accept limits governing us. And by the way, the American people are kind of that way as well, many of them. And then for some good reasons, like we had to spend a huge ton of money on the pandemic. But for all those reasons, we face these awful deficits. And hand it to Biden that at least he is making a feint or a gesture in the direction of responsibility by saying, well, I'm going to raise taxes. Now, admittedly, he wants to raise taxes in the most popular way, that is only on the very rich. But the Republicans, they have a very different idea, which we can get to in a minute, but they resist any effort to um, deal with budget deficits through taxation. Because this budget blueprint is a campaign pamphlet or just a political agenda to help his party next year and to challenge the Republicans. It doesn't matter what the numbers are, but it is politically smart to come in and say, I'm supporting a strong defense budget. I want to address our deficit and cut $3 trillion. I want, as you pointed out, Mona, to pursue the popular policy of taxing the wealthy and making them like pay their fair share, um, negotiating drug costs. All this stuff is very popular, and he's looking like he's trying to also uh, be responsible and be more centrist than he was during the Build Back Better negotiations where he was you know, with the left of the party pushing for an unrealistic, uh, deep social safety package that was not only unaffordable, but they never had the math to pass. He seems to be in a pretty good position because Republicans are so divided. They're trying to look for $130 billion in savings to get down to FY22 spending levels. They won't <laughs> raise taxes. They don't want to touch the defense budget. They don't want to touch entitlements. They're going to be scraping through, you know, whatever less than 30% of the budget in non-defense discretionary. We've all seen that movie before. And so it'll be really interesting. He's saying, this is my budget. Show me yours. And as they waste more time before we get to the fiscal cliff of the debt ceiling, the Republicans are going to have to come up with a final plan, one that they've been talking about since January 3rd or whenever McCarthy was elected speaker that week but they haven't produced. And I think it's going to be interesting to see the Republicans try to pull their act together. I'm not saying that Biden, I mean, he couldn't pass any of this. It's all, you know, a joke. But um, in terms of a campaign agenda and the political posturing that's going to be taking place before the debt ceiling, I think Republicans are very uncomfortable right now about the weeks and months ahead. Yeah. Linda, the... um I haven't been able to get a real bead on where the Republicans are going to come out on the matter of defense spending. They're sending a lot of mixed signals. For a while there, they were saying they were definitely going to urge a huge cut in defense spending. So that would be utterly uh, a new set of clothes for the party that used to be all about a forceful American role in the world and strong defense. 
But in other respects, some of the things that are coming out of the Republican House are really like the snidely whiplash image of the cruel Republicans. One outline that I saw calls for a 45% cut to foreign aid, $3.4 billion cut in State Department migration and refugee assistance. I thought you'd love that one, Linda. Adding a work requirement for food stamp and Medicaid beneficiaries. Well, that might be all right. A 43% cut to housing programs, including phasing out Section 8, and it goes to low-income people, cutting the FBI's counterintelligence budget by half, and eliminating Obamacare expansions to Medicaid. What do you think? Well, what I think is that Congress is not been very timely in passing appropriations bills, has not in fact passed budgets uh, without extensions, has mostly done reconciliations. And certainly with a divided Congress the way it is, I think it'll mostly be a stalemate. I mean, clearly most of the new programs that uh, President Biden wants to see more spending on are not going to happen. I would love to see $7 billion more to go into refugee assistance and also into the kind of assistance that's given to uh, people who come here seeking asylum, but it's not going to happen. And I also think it's going to be very difficult, except for around the edges. I mean, I think negotiating deals on prescription drugs may help. I think they may be able to try to push to get back money from uh, Medicaid providers that basically bilked the government. There may be a few programs like that around the edges. But the fact is that entitlements are where the money is. And it's not just the Democrats that don't want to touch entitlements. I think that you know, President Biden was very clever in his State of the Union in basically getting, you know, almost a standing ovation from the Republicans to make sure we don't touch Social Security, we aren't going to touch Medicare. Well, if you don't touch those programs, if you don't do something to fix them in a way that's going to make them sustainable in the long term, you're not going to be able to deal with the oversights deficits and with uh, the debt that the United States is accumulating. And the real problem is going to be that, you know, we've got to do something about raising the debt ceiling. And they've done a lot of accounting tricks over the last few months to try to forestall us reaching that debt ceiling, but it can't be put off forever. And there you're talking about something that doesn't just risk government programs. It risks ordinary Americans. It could, in fact, lead to not just a recession, but a major collapse of the U.S. economy if we are in default on our debt. I mean, it just would be a catastrophe. So I don't know what's going to happen on the Hill. I think we're going to see a lot of posturing, but I don't expect to see many of these new programs enacted, nor do I uh, imagine that the Republicans are going to come up with some sort of alternative that they're going to pass. Damon, observers have noted that part of the problem here is that the Republicans are saying they will not raise the debt ceiling unless, and then dot, dot, dot. They haven't said what they want to cut. They haven't said what their plan is. So that's that's one problem. But the second problem is that this crowd, the same crowd that is sending a delegation over to the prison in D.C. to visit the political prisoners of January 6th, the same crowd that gets its information from Fox News, it's possible they would let the nation default on its debt. 
it's possible. I guess I'm naive enough to think, you know, there's always this, there's a dichotomy here. Our politics is now on the right is always on two levels. And you saw that with the Dominion document release about Fox News. And there's a version in Congress, too, where people will say like, oh, no blank check for Ukraine, you know, kind of parroting what they think the base wants them to say. But then you get them in a room and you actually say to Kevin McCarthy, like, you're not really going to cut aid to Ukraine dramatically, right? And he would be like, no, of course not. We don't want to do that. We're just saying it because we got to say it. And so you have this kind of two track thing going on where like, it's very difficult from the outside to know what it is exactly the party cares about versus what it just says in order to placate the all-powerful base. And the result is, even during the Trump years when Trump had total control of the government, and other than the corporate tax cut, they couldn't even pass anything else, let alone in a situation like this where the party knows, yeah, we really have no power here. We don't have the Senate. We don't have the presidency. And so then everything just becomes these kind of symbolic statements. And yeah, I mean, uh, listeners probably know the term messaging bill. You know, a messaging bill is when a party is out of control uh, of the presidency and so just kind of puts up a bill that's a notional, aspirational thing. Like, well, if I had all the power that I don't actually have, I would do this. And then the voters go, yay, that's what I want. And then hopefully they'll show up and vote for you the next time. And Republicans have their version of it. And now that has moved in. And so even these kind of budget statements are done as messaging bills. So you have the Republicans sort of gesturing toward wanting to cut all kinds of things. And in the end, no one really believes they want to do it, but yet they know that they have to pretend to do it. And then even Biden's budget, he knows he's not going to get any of this stuff. And so that becomes a messaging bill, too. And so what will end up getting months from now, right on the precipice of default? I I don't know. It's going to be whatever's left when you subtract each from the other. And then you end up with this tiny sliver of something down there that probably will represent very little change from this year's budget. It's sort of the way it's done now, and it's an expression of the dysfunctionality of our politics more generally, I think. Yeah, I tend to think that that image from the State of the Union, where both parties were keen to show that they are adamantly opposed to any cuts in Medicare or Social Security, will not come down to us as a symbol of anything other than utter dysfunction, right? The Republicans would love to make cuts. It's just that they feel trapped and can't get away with it. And it's the same thing with, you know, the Democrats have their own versions of those things, things they would love to do, and they say they'll do them, but they sort of know that political reality will keep it from ever happening. And uh, and so we just sort of coast along with deficits getting bigger and bigger and nothing really changing. Yeah. So, you know, so far we've been able to skate because, you know, we have the world's biggest economy and uh, the reserve currency and everybody still wants to lend us money. Well, let's see what happens when we start making calculations on the basis of 5% interest rates. Well, that's right. (laughs) That's absolutely right. And we had uh, Jerome Powell this week saying, huh, guys, prepare for higher interest rates because we uh, are not finished fighting inflation by a long shot. So we shall see. All right. 
I'm sure we'll come back to these topics again and again. And uh, in the next several weeks, we are going to be hearing from Maya McGinnis of the uh, Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, who knows all of these things in granular detail. So we'll get into this a little bit deeper when she joins us. But for now, we're going to turn to our highlight and lowlight of the week. We're very sorry that Bill Galston's connection problems did not get fixed, but let's start with you, A.B. Well, I can't believe I'm saying this, but there's still good surprises or not bad surprises in our politics. And I'm going to have to give credit to Senator J.D. Vance for stepping into the fray and backing some additional regulations for rail safety, working on a bill with his Democratic delegation mate who's running for re-election in the red state of Ohio, Democrat Sherrod Brown. He cannot yet convince his new Republican colleagues to come around, but he's working on it with Democrat Sherrod Brown. And I just think that with everything else that we are seeing, particularly on the House side, then of course, in the presidential campaign and and with Trump, I am just glad to see that someone like J.D. Vance, for whom I had very low expectations, is actually trying to work across the aisle and take the political heat that he might on the Republican side to do something right. I'm not sure where it will go, but I give credit to both of them for working with each other, and I was glad to see it. Okay, good. Thank you for that. Linda Chavez. Well, I'm going to go in an entirely different direction. There were two pieces that ran back to back on Thursday and on Wednesday in the New York Times that were my lowlights of the week. One was How to Get Kids to Hate English by Pamela Paul, and the other <laughs> was I'm What's Wrong with the Humanities by Ross Doubt That. Both of them pointed to a new study that shows that English majors are disappearing off of campuses. Nobody's studying literature anymore. And apparently a lot of people think that it's a worthless thing to study. What, what are you going to do with an English degree? Well, I'm here to tell you that I give my thanks to the nuns who taught me for 12 years and then to my degree in English in college for my success, such as it is in life, because I think reading literature taught me how to think, how to analyze. It opened up new worlds to me, and I think it was a very beneficial degree. However, what Ms. Paul talks about is what's happened to the English degree. And apparently the kind of degree I got in 1970 from the University of Colorado, where I read great books, is not the kind of degree that most students who do study English or even in the high school level are taught in English classes. Uh, apparently, people don't read books anymore. Even Ross Douthat admits that he's rarely reads full-length books and certainly nothing written in the 19th century in the way of great literature. And I think a lot of it does have to do with changes uh, in our culture. It has to do with our shortening attention spans, the way in which everybody is focused on blogs or on Twitter. But it also has to do with the kind of politics that has invaded the classroom over the years. And so that instead of looking for great works of literature written by whomever, we tend to categorize books by the race, the color, the national origin, and the sex, and the sexual uh, orientation of the writers. Uh, rather than looking for greatness, we're 
busy dividing ourselves. And so I guess that's why we are not seeing very many English majors anymore, but I think it's a bad thing. Yes, 100% agree. Impoverishes the soul. Damon Linker. Well, I guess you could say that this is both a highlight and a low light, depending on how you look at it. This is an article in The New Yorker that, at least in my sort of circle online, had everybody talking this week, titled Agnes Callard's Marriage of the Minds. Now, Agnes Callard is a, a professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago. She's a frequent tweeter, and so I'm very much aware of her from that. But she also you know, combines her academic study of philosophy with more journalistic intellectual writing in places like The New Yorker and The Point magazine and, and Harper's. And I've always appreciated her writing very clear and interesting and kind of deep. But this piece, I don't think, portrays her very flatteringly, although, again, it certainly generated a lot of attention. It's basically about how, at some point a few years ago, she fell in love with one of her graduate students, who was about 27, 28 years old, very quickly decided that she had to divorce her husband, told her husband this. They got divorced in three weeks from the time she mentioned it to him to the finalized divorce. And Whoa. eventually, and, and she, they have kids too. And eventually they set up a household where she and her new much younger husband is living with her kids and her ex-husband all in the same house. And the article is sort of about how she's treating this whole experience as material for her study of philosophy, like my religious sexual experiences and let me reflect philosophically on them. As I said, it's the kind of thing where you read it and you almost can't believe what you're reading and you can't stop gossiping about it with your friends online. But all along, at least I end up like sort of stupefied thinking like isn't this just a version of like what's now called me search <laughs> which is what yeah. academics sometimes refer to as like what students these days do in lieu of research <laughs> like mm. everything that you do research on is just basically about me and my identity my race my gender where i come from my background and then you look into that but this is a kind of me search where instead of looking at your identity you're looking at your erotic experiences and then focusing on it and then this very article in the new yorker is itself an expression of that same impulse to kind of hold up this one woman's, I think, sort of a wreck of a home life as a kind of, again, mixture of gossip and intellectual titillation. So I don't know what to say about it other than, hmm, uh, this doesn't seem like the most healthy trend. Wow, Damon. We could have many a long podcast on these kinds of issues, which I would love, because this kind of vanity and preening and exhibitionism is just loathsome to me. I freely confess to being completely bourgeois in my morality. I think people should put others before themselves. They should consider their children. And uh, I can be pretty judgmental, which is so totally out of fashion now, but uh, <laughs> but I would love to discuss these things further, and we'll have to find a way. 
listeners, if you want some of that, you just let us know in the comments and, and we'll yeah, see. Maybe we'll do know. a special episode sometime. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I just make a quick relate? Maybe I'll make this my, my highlight or low light because it's related. So we were at a conference, a bunch of us Bulwark people were at a conference last weekend called Principles First, and there were a lot of Bulwark fans there. It was wonderful. Got to meet a lot of fantastic people from all over the country. They came from far and wide, and it was great. But one of the panels was uh, Charlie Sykes interviewing John Bolton. And so I have been reading John Bolton's book since that interview stimulated my interest. And, um, you know, I'm struck by something that Bolton is guilty of, but it's not limited to him. It is sort of the disease of our age in particular, though maybe it haunts every age. I'm sure it does. But, you know, it's the imperial me. It's the me, me, me. You know, why did he go to work for Trump knowing exactly what Trump is and so forth? It's like, well, I had a very high opinion of my own abilities. And his sort of world revolved around being honored, being important, and so on. And people are willing to sacrifice their principles, their good judgment, and so on, and lots of other things for the sake of their ego. And uh, it's not a pretty sight. So I'm going to leave it at that. I mean, there are many good things about John Bolton, I should add. He's exceptionally bright, very accomplished. And, uh, you know, he's now saying that he'll do anything to keep Trump from returning to the Oval Office. So great. But the imperial me is uh, very present with him. <laughs> and with that, I want to thank our guest, A.B. Stoddard, and our sound engineer for today, Joe Armstrong. Our producer is Katie Cooper. And of course, I want to thank all of our listeners, especially those that I got to meet last weekend. I hope to meet more of you in uh, the coming months when the Bulwark will have more events. It's always great to put actual humans to one's audience. So thank you very much. And we will return next week as every week. Mm-hmm.